Stand clear of the closing doors, please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, you never know what could be lurking around the corner. Fantasy, horror, sci-fi, or the just plain weird. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbaum, Professor Emeritus Calliope DeGamowitz, and Inquisitor James Earl King II as they discover the stories drifting in and out of your reality. Wonka, he could have sunk us. How far are we? It doesn't work like that. The relationship between space and causality is in flux on the seas of the digital dead. We won't know where we're going until so we... we're lost. Overstayed? I see it. It's a Russian bot. Whatever you do, don't engage. What? Why would I... Looks like we've got this sent. Hey, what'd you call me? Shut up. What? You think it was coincidence there were zero George Soroses aboard the USS Maine at Pearl Harbor? Wait, zero? Yeah. Stop talking to it. Well, I don't know. He's just asking questions, and I... Snap out of it. Ow! Did you just hit me? That wasn't me. That was... My parents are dead. Oh, Christ. We're getting eaten alive out here, Overdraft. What are we gonna do? A distinguished job will be for home. Dive! What? Your laptop may be infected. You heard me. It's our only chance. Dive! Don't talk to me or my son ever again. I can't believe that worked. You can't. You know what? It's fine. That's fine. Don't get too comfortable. If anything, the predators are even more dangerous down here. Just fewer and far betweener. So what now? (gasps) Poetry. Sure, why not? Because I could not stop for lunch, Peter Piper picked the plums that were in your ice box. No. No. Not. Shh. What lips my lips have kissed and will miss. Susie had a steamboat. It sailed up the Mekong and when it took on fire. Not your poetry. Oh, well. Poems. Real poems have a sort of hermeneutic immunity to all the toxic radiation of this place. They come and go freely. Look, here comes one now. CSE Cooney's Fox Girl Cycle. 
Look, it's heading... Starport? Well, don't just stand there. Plot a course to pursue. We're off to find the Oracle. Yeah, yeah. Aye, aye, Captain. She'll slip her skin Drown her in water She'll learn to swim Burn her She'll turn into smoke and wind Think you can catch her Well, think again Fox, demon, foxy face Fox girls don't know their place Marry her, bury her Water her bones Set your sons over her Let them just spy on her Hound her and carry her Pelt her with stones Wrap her in thorn and she'll slip her skin Drown her in water, she'll learn to swim Burn her, she'll turn into smoke and wind Think you can catch her? Well, think again Hunting, conniving, a vixen, a villain She'll pull out your liver and eat it with rice Fingers for turnips and bowls full of maggots Your blood in her wine glass runs colder than ice Wrap her in thorn and she'll slip her skin Drown her in water, she'll learn to swim Burn her, she'll turn into smoke and wind Think you can catch her? Well, think again The wide world over, they all try to tame her Like Lilith and Lamia, serpent and whore Arcane, she is dangerous, ever the demoness Black widow, blood shadow, thirsty for more Wrap her in thorn and she'll slip her skin Drown her in water, she'll learn to swim Burn her, she'll turn into smoke and wind Think you can catch her? Well, think again Seductive illusion, all craft and confusion She'll tuck up her tail and take to the wood She'll duck as you're nearing her Fuck you for fearing her Fox girls are clever and up to no good At least so they tell me she's up to no good But do I believe them? I don't think I should. Trap her in thorn and she'll slip her skin. Drown her in water, she'll learn to swim. Burn her, she'll turn into smoke and wind. Think you can catch her? Well, think again. Trap her in thorn and she'll slip her skin. Drown her in water, she'll learn to swim. Burn her, she'll turn into smoke and wind. Think you can catch her? Well, think again. They say my name means eulogy. They say my name means death. They say my name means prisoner. My name means emptiness. They say my name means weariness. They say my name means damned Lonely ghost at midnight Shadow, shame and sham But I am gone, gone, gone 
I am gone beyond your shaming. I am gone, gone, entirely gone. I am gone beyond your naming. My name means awake. My name means awake. My name means free. There is nothing wrong with me. Swish of her skirts on the pine needle track. Lend her your luck and you'll never know lack. Dance, dance, box of her dance. C.S.C. Cooney wrote and performed this song. She is the author of World Fantasy Award-winning Bone Swans Stories. Her short novel, The Twice-Drowned Saint, is included in Mythic Delirium's anthology, The Sinister Quartet. Her forthcoming novel, Saint Death's Daughter, will be out with Rebellion in spring of 2022. Other work includes Tor.com novella Desdemona and the Deep, and short fiction and poetry in Jonathan Strahan's anthology, Dragons, 
Ellen Datlow's Mad Hatters and March Hares, all new stories from the world of Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, Rich Horton's Year's Best Science Fiction and Fantasy, and elsewhere. She has also narrated over 100 audiobooks, including her own. Look for Bone Swan Stories and Desdemona and the Deep wherever audiobooks are sold. Aspiring dungeon master, audiobook engineer, podcaster, and musician, Jeremy Cooney draws inspiration from body pirate tales, Irish and American folk music, sword and sorcery fantasy, and gritty science fiction. His projects include Hail the Void, a 5th edition D&D podcast starring his companion, his brother, his mother, and his friends, and editing and production of The Gown of Harmonies, audiobook by Francesca Forrest. The early music specialist Stephen Mark Dalek plays lutes, hurdy-gurdy, the pipe and tabor, the bladder pipe, guitar, mandolin, penny whistle, ukulele, harmonica, crumb horns, bass guitar, ocarina, and possibly other instruments. In addition to early music on period instruments, Steve has performed traditional folk music, classical, pop, world music, ambient, ritual, trance, and even a few show tunes. This episode was made possible by our Patreon subscribers. A special thank you to Aya McGuire. hope you enjoy listening to the Kaleidocast as much as we enjoy making it for you. If you are, will you consider joining our Patreon? It's a way for you to financially support this podcast with whatever you feel comfortable giving. Right now, the Kaleidocast pays semi-pro rates for original fiction, but we have big dreams. We want to pay more for the authors, narrators, engineers, and artists who make this podcast possible. Won't you join us? Visit patreon.com slash kaleidocastnyc. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash k-a-l-e-i-d-o-c-a-s-t-n-y-c. From all your producers, Bradley, Cam, S-O-A, Joe, Marcus, Marcy, Sam, and Sandra, thank you for supporting the Kaleidocast. Overton, the poem is leading us somewhere. What is that? The Oracle's Temple? It looks kind of like... Don't say it. Tron! We have arrived, Master Control Program. Be quiet. Oracle, we have arrived. Two seekers of data, we beseech thee. Bless us with your predictive heuristics. So the oracle is actually 
oracle. You didn't know? The oracle is a stack of substack of databases compiled into a being as wise as they are beautiful. Yeah, sure. You're an oracle stan. Yeah, that tracks. Hey, hey, our ship! It's floating away! Overstreet, version 1,023,016.2. Welcome to the Infinite Stacks. Hmm, sounds, uh, kinky when they say it like that. Shh! Oh, great and collated one. We ask humbly from our guest account, how may we save our multiverse from the Omniverse's imminent takeover? Inquiry received. Searching databases. The Omniverse cannot be stopped. Uh, what's that? The Omniverse cannot be stopped. That's it? Surely somewhere in the infinite stacks there is data. Data perhaps only your magnificence may access? The Omniverse cannot be stopped. (laughs) Well, this has been a delight. Hey, Oracle, is there a place around here that serves up a good strawberry daiquiri? Shut up, Oracle. Is there a way to reverse the destruction of our multiverse? The Omniverse cannot be stopped. Your questions are answered. Would you like to go back to your origin point? Game over, man. Game over. Origin point. Of course. Of course what? The causality chain cannot be broken. Your multiverse is now and always has been a subsidiary of the Omniverse. Of course. It might work. But you heard what they said. It's it's too late. Too late so far. Back to the multiverse. What are we supposed to do? Call an Uber? Our boat's gone. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. A suitable transport is arriving nearby. It's sailing into the underworld by Mimi Mondal with Joshua A.C. Newman. Ooh, swords and sorcery. Well, what are we waiting for? The world may be ending, but if we're going out, let's go out in style. Sailing to the Underworld, or Anywhere You Take Me From Here, by Mimi Mandal, with Joshua A.C. Newman, originally published for Joshua A.C. Newman's collaborative RPG, Bloody Handed Name of Bronze, 2018. It wasn't because life at the brothel in the city of Calnrum was particularly wretched that Tinkari left. It was simply that he wanted to see the world. His brothel mother was bemused, but did not restrain him. Fully trained courtesans were free to go anywhere they chose, but few of those raised in the brothel of Calnrum ever went anywhere else. Life on the trade routes only sounded romantic in the tales of the foreign visitors they received, she told him, and most of them were sweet talkers and scoundrels. She warned that Tinkari would quickly grow to miss the soft bread filled with meat and sweet date paste, the daily baths and fresh linen sheets. 
his fragrant room with its earth floor sprinkled twice a day with jasmine water. All the luxuries he always took for granted. But Tinkari had made up his mind. No matter. A courtesan of Kalnrum would have no difficulty making a living on the road, sighed his mother, as she held up his chin in two fingers and painted a delicate triangle of beauty spots below his lip. Stay off, wandering hero aspirants, soldiers of fortune, trinket sellers, and other riffraff. That is the way to go destitute. Only bestow your graces upon clan lords, priests of high temples, wealthy merchants, reputable artisans with land and coin. When you lodge at a brothel in a lesser settlement, accept no less than their best room, the one that faces the street yet shades you from the long, cruel hours of the sun. Practice your singing. Don't forget to rub castor oil in your hair each night, and braid and beat it afresh in the morning. Remember, no matter where, you are a courtesan of Kamrum, and there's no creature fairer in the world. Tinkari nodded obediently as she adorned his hair for the final time tinted his lips with biddle juice, and took a long, exasperated look at him. Then he made his farewells and took up his spot on the wealthiest merchant caravan, making its way out of the city of his birth. His mother was correct, of course. Tinkari had paid handsomely to acquire a well-shaded wagon strong with cushions all to himself but life on the road in some ways treated everyone equal, and the treatment quickly grew sparse the further they traveled from Calnrum. It was exciting for the first moon turn or so, as the caravan stopped at caravansiaris along the winding road, and everyone would emerge and dine together. Merchant, guards, servants, families mingling with travelers from other lands and sharing stories around fires lit underneath the open night skies. All of them plucking roasted meat with their fingers from the long bones of Katesh and swallowing it down with sharp, sweet wine. After dinner, his fellows from the caravan retreated to the rented travelers' quarters or spread out to sleep under the sky. Tinkari claimed his place at the local brothel, holding open the palm of his left hand, upon which the twine desert rose branded at the time of his initiation would find him a home in any brothel raised under auspices of the great name of Vin. For the next two days or three, the merchants would ply their business in the markets of the town, and Tikari from his new residences, after which they would regroup or return to the roads. He kept his mother's counsel, and dallied only with the affluent. But as the towns grew smaller and more rustic, it was harder to find any patron who either had the purse to pay the true price of a courtesan of Calnrum, or the full appreciation of his worth. By the second turn of the moon, Tinkari was bored of everything. The never-ending financial chatter of the merchants, the dust and grime of the road, 
the fumbling awe of the ill-trained oafs who called themselves courtesans in these backyards of humanity. Tinkari had left home for adventure, but all that seemed to stretch ahead in his future were moon turns and moon turns of bumpy wagon rides and familiarizing himself with sweaty village folks with lives as interesting as a cabbage. The place where he decided to change, that was yet another village, where the caravan road ran parallel to the Shashi, and even the soaring winds from the wider river couldn't dissolve the whiff of fish guts. The caravanziari was small, doubling as village square, market, with the brothel tucked away among them, all of it open on one side to the white stretches of the Shashi. Tinkari stretched out on a dusty reed mat placed upon the dirt floor of the Sarai, bargaining lazily with a hopeful young man, a village head's son or something, who had brought him a stem of tuberoses, which Tinkari plucked with his fingers and strung into a wreath as he responded with a word to every fumbling five. That was when his eyes came to rest upon the extraordinary watercraft moored upon the riverside, its elegant stern rising ethereally like the neck of a swan among the dull fishing boats and ferries of the village. A canopy of scarlet and turquoise silk, trimmed in geometric lines of gold, swelled above the boat, concealing its quarry for the eyes of the world. Two oars were angled into the water, but there was no traveler. His eyes did a quick survey of the courtyard, alighting upon the only extraordinary figure in the crowd of rustics. The woman sat cross-legged, taking her meal on the other side of the caravansiari. Her tall, sand-brown frame and sinewy arms were visible above the men and women who gathered around her. None of them looked quite like her entourage. She looked utterly foreign to this part, with her eyes traced long in coal and malachi, and the crisp, pleated linen sheath that exposed some big, powerful calves. The towering woman looked up from her plate, where a caravansiari attendant ladled in steaming fish stew next to a mound of flatbread and roasted vegetables, while yet another refilled her a cup of beer. A skinny young girl pressed a towel soaked in cold water to her corded shoulders. That, said the woman darkly, squinting at Tinkari, is the funeral barge of Emperor Imhotep III of Mizar. Tinkari bit his lip lost for a nap response. Someone stifled a giggle. The woman shrugged. I am the ords bearer of it. He perked up. Such esteem personages are rare in this part of the world. It would be my delight to serve you for a few hours of pleasure. The ords bearer of a royal funeral barge may receive food, drink, medicine, and other essentials along her route. But she holds no goods in excess that she can partake of a courtesan. The woman made a slow appraisal of him, 
drawing her gaze painstakingly from head to toe. Less someone like you. Tinkari decided this was a compliment. I am allowed to take the occasional lover for no pay, he pressed on. As long as you tell your friends, spread the good word, that, that kind of thing. I shall be spreading the good word to no one, son, the Ortsbearer grimaced. I am headed to the waters of the underworld, leading the departed soul of the Emperor of Mizar. No friend I may meet at the end of their journey will have any use for the warmth of a courtesan. My company will bring you no gain. You could still come, Tinkari pouted as she rose from her meal, and eventually the oarsbearer sighed and followed him to the tiny brothel room with his damp, swollen walls that was the best that he would procure in that wretched village. In that room, where she could barely stretch out her entire frame, with death in her coal and malachi eyes and the river wind in her sweat, the solemn ortsbearer nearly made Tinkari lose his religion in choking gasps. Let me travel with you, he proposed, as the night streaked toward dawn. A funeral barge is not a ferry or pleasure boat, rumbled the ortsbearer as she fastened the knots of her sheath. Snowcraft for a courtesan to ply his trade. Well, a courtesan does not only lie with a different patronish time, Tinkari replied. Folks in these parts can barely pay my price anyway. For two entire moon turns, I've been pleasuring buffoons in exchange for bowls of fruit, pots of lumpy honey, bits of marble that any child could find in a gutter of Calmrim. If you take me as your concubine, I'll receive better food and hospitality at this caravansiaris than I do on my own. That would be adequate payment. He followed her dismissive stare and added, Um, I can sing. Surely a song or two would not be amiss on a funeral barge. The Ortsbearers murked, fine, but you should know this. The funeral barge is bound to a fixed course down the Shashi, leading to the waters of the underworld. It may not change route or stop at any settlement besides to seek replenishment. If you find another distraction anywhere along the way, you're free to take your leave but the barge will not wait for you. If you last the entire journey, I will drop you off at Gilgish, City of the Dying. Understood? Tinkari's eyes glittered with excitement. He raised his left hand to his mouth and gratefully brushed the desert rose with his lips breathing in its fragrance that was branded into his skin as deep as the raised welt. His great name was satisfied with the terms of his transaction. The elders at the brothel of Conrum always reminded its initiates how fortunate they were to serve Vin, the lady of elegant pleasures. Perhaps the gentlest of all names. 
Other great names demanded much harder contracts from their servants. But the Lady Vin forbade only one thing. As long as he remained within that single tenant, Tinkari could have any adventure he wished. Where is the Emperor of Mizar? He asked as the funeral barge was far enough from the shore. Beneath the turquoise and red canopy was an elegant pedestal, surrounded by boxes spilling with treasure, jewelry with precious stones set in silver and gold, intricately carved miniatures of ships, palaces, dancers, animals, and birds, bowls of jade filled with ambergris, frankincense, and dried flowers. Upon the base was a startlingly lifelike death mask of gold, with eyes of obsidian and jade. The body of the Emperor of Mizar is in the crypt beneath his pyramid in Mizar, said the Ordsbearer in a voice with which one spoke to an imbecile or a child. It is his soul that I deliver to the waters of the underworld. Did they teach you nothing at the brothel of Calrum? Tinkari felt colors bloom on his cheeks. He was one of the most highly prized courtesans on the land, trained for years in the entertainments of every possible people and culture. He knew how to speak beguiling words in every language, each song and dance, all the ways to sate the sensual cravings of anyone willing to pay its price. He knew how to soothe the bloodied muscles of warriors, or cook exquisite desserts from well-guarded recipes that would send the wealthiest nobles to weeping. But the education of a courtesan did not extend beyond the rituals of bodies that were warm. By the name of Vin, this grouchy, mysterious ordsbearer from his R was yet to see what they had taught him at the brothel of Calmrim. With a sigh, Tinkari leaned back against the stern of the barge and started humming a Missouri wedding night bridal song. At the bow, the ordsbearer let out a cackle. Sorry he said. Funeral songs are usually not within the repertoire of a courtesan. Feel free to belt it out loud. The woman laughed. We're far enough from Mizar that no one can tell the difference, even if your voice carries to the shores. The only person you'll be entertaining is me. She spared him a quick glance. As you should, being my concubine. Tinkari beamed, pleased with himself. The Emperor of Mizar won't mind. She returned a shrug. The Emperor of Mizar is dead. Tickled, he sang a few more erotic ditties, choosing the ones with more and more suggestive lyrics. The Ordsbearer laughed each time he got too scandalous, and every laugh made Tinkari's heart leap a little bit. She did not really start a conversation or break from rowing the barge. The day grew hotter. 
The river gleamed with such a hard brightness that Tinkari could barely keep his eyes open. He watched sweat roll down the spine of the oarsbearer, dancing between the steady rise and fall of the muscles of her shoulders and back. His mother back in Calm would be livid if she saw him let his delicate complexion roast in the sun like that. He finally had to ask, Do you mind if I sit under the canopy, or would that be disrespectful? Sit wherever you like, came the reply. I'm an orts-bearer, not a priest. Tinkari crawled on all fours among the jewels and silk cushions. Cool and fragrant shade embraced him. He fingered the mound of treasures. Enough to last a mighty emperor an entire afterlife. Filch anything, and I'll feed your fingers to the alligators. Hmm. A real charmer, aren't you? Tinkari grumbled. He picked up a small jade container, tentatively sniffing it. Carrying the soul of your emperor to the underworld like some kind of morbid slave. I'm sure the emperor doesn't mind if I took a tiny pinch of this rare ambergris. The words stuck on his tongue as there was a swift splash of oars being withdrawn and a green copper razor, its edge still throbbing, appeared at his throat. A shiver went through Tinkari as the oars bearer loomed at the other end of it, murder in her eyes. I meant what I said. She bared her teeth. You squander even a little bit of my treasures, young man, and no one will fish out your corpse from the depths of the shashi. She looked very little like the solemn orgebearer then, and very much like a sand wolf cornering a prey. One of those ferocious beasts that Tinkari had only heard of in travelers' tales. I, I apologize, he whispered, loosening his fingers from the pot of ambergris, which dropped like dead weight. I, I, I shouldn't have insulted your emperor like that. The emperor does not care for any of your insults. The orgebearer pressed the blade, and a tiny spot of blood blossomed against Tinkari's windpipe. The emperor is going where he needs to go, charge for the deals he has accrued in his life. One pot of perfume, more or less, isn't going to make a difference to him, but that pot sells for 800 gold pieces in the Marcus of Shavash. And you're not worth half that sum to me, pretty boy. So keep your thieving fingers to yourself. In spite of his terror, Tinkari managed a practice grin. So you're not going to the underworld after all. I should have guessed. You're too hot to be a morbid slave. And you're a fool. One step away from becoming alligator feed. But she grinned too. I'll remember that the next time I let my finger wander. He reached his arms to wrap around her waist, drawing her clothes over him. Anyway, you needn't worry, 
I am a courtesan of Conram, not a thief. I am quite capable of earning my own living. You have no idea of the things I can do. Then show me, she demanded. So he did. Afterward, they sat under the canopy, eating cold flatbread and thick fish stew in the cool evening breeze. Tinkari took a bath in the river. He climbed back onto the barge to find that the oarsbearer had kept a half of pomegranate for him. So what is your actual deal? he asked her. You haven't even told me your name. The oarsbearer of a funeral barge has no need to be addressed as anything else, she replied grimly. But call me Hanta if you must. That's not even a Missouri name, he laughed. The oarsbearer, Hanta, glared at him. Tinkari drew back involuntarily, but she did not put out her knife again. Instead, she replied, The oarsbearer of the funeral barges of Mizar are picked from among prisoners on death row. Ethnicity is not a huge consideration for those being sent to a prolonged death sentence, bound by treaties they cannot break. That is the worst thing I've ever heard. Hanta shrugged. Then you haven't heard many bad things, little courtesan. Coddled all your life in pleasure and excess. But you were a death row prisoner? You must be the most cunning criminal, he brightened up, ignoring the jive. Surely you've already made a clever deal to get out of this. Are you fool enough to think that the journey of the deceased emperor of Ms. R to the waters of the underworld depends upon just one person's deal? That, too, a foreign miscreant with no honor or loyalty to that empire? The royal priest of Ms. R treated with the sun. Anyone who tries to plunder the treasures on the barge will be burned to death in an instant, and that includes me. The widowed queen treated with the barge itself, so it may deliver her husband and his ore-bearer on harm to the underworld. The new emperor, younger brother of the deceased, treated with the empire of Ms. R for the withering of all trade for any settlement along the route that declines to provide sustenance to the Ordsvera. These are ancient, powerful deals that have propelled every royal funeral barge from his R in history. I don't have to proclaim them each time I stop at a new settlement. If I could make the sun or the empire of Mizar alter their treaties for me, do you think that I have ended up on death row in the first place? But you're so far away from Mizar, out on the open waters. It can't possibly be that nothing in this long moon turns on the river can find you a gap to escape. Maybe I could help. By what? Fucking your way out of my fate? <laughs> Hans's laughter sounded like a bark. Listen, Tinkari, you're a pleasant enough companion on this mirthless journey, but don't flatter yourself by thinking you're anything more. My fate and the names that bind it are far beyond your understanding. We're not friends. 
nor is there any reason for us to be. As long as you stay on this barge, you keep your counsel, and I keep mine. And after that, we never see each other again. The full moon hung like a specter of a Gilgish city of the dying when Hanta pulled the barge into its docks. It was only noon, but the sun had steadily retreated as they had come closer to the underworld, till the only difference between day and night was dark and a thicker, glowing dark. Swirling fingers of pitch-black water from the underworld crept upstream in the currents. Where they touched the waters of the Shashi, it froze, forming brittle flows that Hanta cracked and pushed aside with the oars as she rowed. Both of them were wrapped in several layers of rough wool shawl that they had picked up at an earlier settlement. There was no singing. Tinkari felt like his voice had died in his throat, along with the warmth in his blood. Gilgish was on a small swampy delta that emerged like flotsam under the sickly purple sky. Tinkari hadn't expected an actual city, but it was. Its paved streets lined with hospices, teeming with people on the threshold of death. The extremely old, the incurably ill, the mortally wounded, and so on. A few inns housed the families who had traveled from distant lands bringing in their dying. The only permanent inhabitants of Gilgish were the priests in their temples, offering absolution to the dying, cooks, medics, and cleaners who care for their physical needs, undertakers, pallbearers, and mourners who took over after. The walls of Gilgish were sculpted with intricate designs, but a film of moss clung to every surface, squelching under Tinkari's fingers before he wiped them in alarm on corners of his shawl. There was no laughter, no children playing in the streets. The only children in Gilgish lay in the hospices, counting their days. This is where we part ways. Hanta informed him as they spooned watery barley slop into their mouths, huddled before the fire at one of the inns. Tinkari had hoped for their final meal to be rather more ceremonious, but the inns of Gilgish did not offer a selection. No emotion showed on Hanta's face. Before disembarking, she had oiled and combed her hair, reapplied the dyes around her eyes, methodically put on each bit of jewelry, and swiped frankincense on her skin like she did every single day. The royal orts-bearer of Miss R presented the same face to each settlement on her way, no matter what hospitality they were able to provide. There are ferries that bring passengers to and from the mainland. On the other side, you'll find wagons and the like. It's a well-traveled route. This place feels like the underworld already. Tinkari tried hopelessly to prolong the conversation, 
I can't believe they built an entire city to service those who are about to die. People die everywhere in the world. And I imagine all their souls end up in the underworld. Do the ones who die closer manage to skip to the front of the line? Those who can afford it go to every length they can. Hanty shrug. Gilgish is the last earthly settlement. The nearest to the underworld that life can exist. And you can see how it already grows thin. There are no fish, sharks, or crocodiles in the river by Gilgish. For any life that touches the currents of the underworld is immediately voided of itself. When a person dies in this town, their bodies laid in a raft and floated downstream. It is another's day's journey from here to the underworld, and the end of which there is no sun, moon, river, or even this spectral light that you find in Gilgish. Then perhaps we can float on our accursed barge downstream as well, and you will have to serve your sentence and be free. Tough luck about the treasures, though. If only it were that easy. Hanta's dry chuckle sounded almost too voluptuous in that dull monochrome place. Coming to die in Gilgish is an expensive service. And yet, those unmanned rabs may still go astray or sink before they make it all the way to the underworld. The Emperor of Miss R can afford even better. My deal doesn't allow me to abandon the barge. I am bound to it all the way. Hanta moved aside her empty bowl of slop as a silent servant scurried over to retrieve it. I live at dawn, and there will be no more stops. Would you not be so kind as to allow me a few hours of sleep? Tinkari sighed miserably and made to follow her into the small room at the back of the inn. I don't think that's a good idea. Hanta squared her shoulders and blocked his way. You have eaten the last meal that you would receive on my accord. Sorry, as I am for it to be such poor fare. I have no coin or anything else to pay for your skills. You can no longer pass as my concubine without dishonoring the deal with your great name. Tinkari snarled an angry curse at her receding back. The taunt muscles and skin and warmth he had stippled with kisses night after lengthening night and stumped out into the city of the dying, feeling no more cheerful than its inhabitants. There was a shrine of Vin in Gilgish. It was tucked away in one of the narrower alleys, merely a hole in the wall around which someone had piled a line of bricks. This was the last place Tinkari had expected to find a shrine to the great name whose realm extended no further than warm bodies. It did not seem to have worshippers either. Thick moss had crept over the bricks nearly returning them to the decrepit wall. 
if not for the twine desert rose that had faintly survived the ravages of time, the same sigil that was branded on Tinkari's left palm in his childhood, overriding the fate lines, he would have walked past it without a glance. He was still fuming with futile rage when he placed his left hand on the clammy surface of the shrine, aligning the sigil on its wall against the welt of his flesh. The wall shimmered with a moment's luminescence. Then the thrumming resonance of the great name filled his head. Who invokes my name in the city of the dying? My lady Vin? It is Tinkari of the brothel of Calmron. I humbly request a reassessment of my name deal. You are far from Calmron, Tinkari. You have invited me to a land where no child of man had sought me in over three centuries. When the last courtesans of Gilgish were felt by a plague caught from one of the dying, a man who carried his own ill-dealt curse. But you have not yet performed service in my name. I cannot truly reawaken in Gilgish till one of my children exercises the skills I vested to them. My lady, I shall gladly perform the service you require, despite this city and its inhabitants that frightened and repel me. But after night, as this city shades into its pale dawn, would you promise to release me forever? You no longer wish to be a courtesan, child, the great name thrummed with surprise. Whatever better life can you expect to find on that blighted land? I, I wish to follow my beloved into the waters of the underworld, he replied. Rage flaring up in his heart at the word he had never used so far. Love is the one pleasure forbidden to courtesans bequeathed to my name, for which I replenish with many others, replied Ven, contempt spiking her thrum. I see into your heart now, and find the tendrils of a twine back several turns of the moon, like a repulsive weed. You have done me unspeakable treachery, Tinkari of Calmrim. Finest of your name, who stripped of his name would be no more than Yuri of Coal Miner's Row. Tinkari winced at that mention, which he had last heard rasped from the sooty lungs of his mother, as she lay dying among the mining settlements that had sprawled west of Calmrum. If he had not been beautiful, and if the Ven had not accepted him, Tinkari knew he would still be in the mines, wheezing and starving and dying slowly like his parents and siblings and everyone he had left behind in Coal Miner's Row, when he was spirited away as a twelve-year-old initiate to the brothel in the city. What did it mean to be stripped back to Yuri again, he wondered. He was far from the coal mines 
far away from Calmerum, twice as old as he was since the last time he touched coal. His mother at the brothel had loved and raised him for longer years than the laborer in coal miner's road who gave birth to him, whose face he often struggled to remember these days. If he abandoned his great name, how much of himself would dissolve with that sacrifice? What would remain? I should smite you this instant, Yuri the Ungrateful. His great name broke his reflection. But I am compelled. Without your service today, I may never return to Gilgish for another century or more. No visitor to that city ever brings a courtesan with them. No local mother remains to recruit new initiates. The practice of courtesanship has vanished from Gilgish, and my name withers with it. Then in the morning, I go free? If devoid of the underworld please you more than the comforts of my servitude, so be it. So Tinkari went to the largest inn in Gilgish and spent his last coins to rent its least uncomfortable room and pay the innkeeper to spread the word. His humble quarters filled up quickly with citizens who had little other entertainment in town, or relatives who have waited months for their dying to finally push off. It was, without compare, the sorriest bunch of patrons Tinkari had ever entertained. His own stores of aphrodisiac, delicately flavored oils, spices and desserts had run out on the journey. His singing was reedy at best. His jokes tiresome with overuse. But none of his new patrons complained, and for their payment they could hardly ask for more. With each new patron, Tinkari felt more beautiful, more powerful, more in his element, till he was no longer accepting worthless trinkets but one small deal at a time. He procured a deal from the third son of a wealthy merchant from Poe to reinstate the shrine of Vin, and later he took another from his own innkeeper to allow the usage of his room as the quarters for any future courtesan who came along after he was gone. A noblewoman from Ubaid, who has spent seven months watching her ailing husband in Gilgish and had no more coin to spare, cut him a deal to send an entourage of the choicest courtesans from her own harem as soon as she returned to her land. Just before daybreak, Tinkabi rose, bathed, and dressed. He walked over to the deserted shrine of Ven in the alleyway and pressed his left palm against the sigil on the wall. When he took it away and wiped off the gunk on his shawl, there was no longer a sigil etched on his skin. Yuri, the ungrateful. He grinned as he rubbed his other hand over his reemerged fate lines, which would lead him to whatever lay ahead. When Tinkari reached the funeral barge, Hanta was already sitting at the bow, staring at the water and murmuring. In the poor light, she looked like a statue cut out of rock. I thought you were getting a good night's sleep, Tinkari said. Hanta stirred, 
You know I can no longer take you on this barge. You shouldn't even be able to get aboard without being burned down by the sun. I made some new friends last night, Tinkari grinned. One of them told me no boat living from Gilgish can deny the request of a passenger seeking deliverance to the underworld. Usually they just shove off the corpses, but if a living person then desires to make that journey, every boat must comply. Hanta returned her gaze to the water. I've been trying to reason with the Shashi all night, she whispered almost to herself. I had been a pearl diver before I was a felon. Rivers have always been kind to me. I worked at a different, smaller river, but the languages of rivers are remarkable similar, as are their hearts. But there are some deals even the Shashi cannot grant, especially this close to its mouth, where the waters are so tainted with the currents of the underworld. I could not even dip my hands into the river as I spoke to it. All I could hear was a faint echo of his voice. About that, Tinkari pulled out a small vial from the folds of his sheath. The passenger abroad, any boat headed to the underworld does not have to pay for his passage. Anyone who's no longer the Ortsbearer concubine, that is. What is it? Hanta stared from the vial to his unmarked hand. A rare unguent found among the river workers of Gelgish, the ones who load the dead onto their rafts and push them out to sea, Tinkari said. He tossed the vial at Hanta, his viscous contents glittering a dark red under the muted sky, like congealed blood speckled with stars. It shields them from contact with the undercurrents of the waters of the underworld, whose slightest touch spells instant death. A patron was particularly pleased with me last night. He sounded not insufficiently pleased with himself. Some people in these parts do understand the worth of a courtesan from Calmer. A wide grin split the face that Tinkari no longer hesitated to proclaim his beloved. You are such an incredible fool. They unfurled the canopy of the barge, hiding them from the occasional river worker as they rubbed the unguent on each other's body. Their skin bloomed with warmth wherever the glitter-red grease soaked in, the chill mist in the air sizzling away from their bodies. After they made love, hurried, Delighted, they laid on the cushions like they had done in warmer waters, no longer reaching for the shawls. While Tinkari dressed, Hanta leaned over the edge of the boat and dipped both hands into the river. She murmured ancient words that he did not recognize. By the time she lifted her hands, wiped them off and took to the oars, he was beside himself with impatience. So what's the plan? We row to the underworld. Hanta turned a solemn face to him. I had told you, Tinkari, the Shashi cannot possibly unmake the ancient deals forged with the sun, the empire of Mizar, or even the barge itself. You are still free to leave if you wish. 
Row on, then, he grimly replied. It was half a day before Gilgish disappeared behind them. They hadn't traveled a great distance, but the mists have closed in fast. The underworld loomed ahead, not so much a horizon but a pure void of black. There was no line between water and the sky in that direction, no stir of wind or voice as they traveled. Tinkari would have thought they had already made the crossing, but for the flows and icy surface of the shashi that emerged from the blackness as the deem oil lamp at the bow of the barge illuminated them, sweat sizzled of Hanta's bare arms as she broke the layers of ice with oars. Black waters of the underworld ooze in over them, dissolving the eyes into the surrounding void as soon as they cracked. Are you sure this barge is the right transport to take into the underworld? Tinkari wonder aloud. Maybe we should have swapped for a slash in Gilgish. It's just this last part of the journey. As long as we're still on the Shashi, the waters of the underworld themselves are perfectly liquid. Beyond the crossing, it will be rowing as usual. Hanta finally turned to look at him. Her eyes sparkled in the light of the lamp. Why don't you make yourself useful and start packing the stuff under the canopy into the shawls? Everything except that wretched death mask. That thing gives me the creeps. Make sure it all fits into two tight bundles and secure slings across the chest. Tinkari was startled. I... I can do that. I would think securing knots were among the skills of a courtesan. Are they not? <laughs> but the deal with the sun? Hanta's chuckle broke the silence of the black waters. Matters only as long as the sun's wrath can reach us. Tinkari looked up at the sky, then around himself. Now that they had lost even the sickly twilight of Gilgish, there was not a trace of the sun anywhere. His hands worked fast. How much of the world could possibly exist between the disappearance of the sun and the beginning of the underworld? It is done, he announced. Hanta withdrew her oars with a dull thunk and came to join him. She swung a bundle experimentally across her back, checking for the strength of the sling. Impeccable. To tell you the truth, I never imagined we could get away with the treasures. My life was the best I had hoped for. She began to laugh as she looked closely around them. Say, did you even strip the canopy and fold up the cloth in these bundles? Brutal. <laughs> My no longer courtesan. That cloth is the finest dyed silk sewn with gold trimmings. Tinkari shrugged, lifting his own bundle. But how does it matter? You're still bound to this wretched barge itself by yet another inviolable oath. And I don't want to hear another word about living without you. Wouldn't know where to go anyway, fleeing from the gasping mouth of the underworld. 
wasn't one of the popular lessons at the brothel of Calmroom. Let me see about that. Hanta dipped her hands in the water and muttered again. Then a triumphant smile appeared on her face. She opened her eyes and winked at Tinkari. I hope the lessons to hold your breath for a very long time was rather more popular. A massive shard of ice pierced the barge from the bottom. Tinkari squealed and nearly toppled into the water, bundle and all, as the frame of the stripped canopy keened over with a groan. Stay close to the pedestal, Hanta cried, as her calves flexed to remain upright on the wildly swaying surface. Horrified, Tinkari threw his arms around the pedestal of the Mizari king like he was a child embracing his mother, and then more shards broke in from below, tearing through the ropes and unpacking the reeds, and the barge began to dissolve in the abyssal waters. Tinkari hit the water at the same time as he watched Hanta, almost in a fluid motion, lower something onto a drifting ice floe. He splayed his arms and legs wildly as the waves rocked him, trying his best but failing to stop himself from swallowing the void-like waters of the underworld as they rushed through his nose and mouth. The mere touch of the water didn't kill him, but their stretch was unending. There was no longer anything to see, no direction to swim. Their oil lamp had guttered with the destruction of the barge. For a second, Tinkari was convinced that all was lost. All his plans had been in vain. Hanta had dissolved in the void like all other joy and light in his life. And when he made his way through the crossing, miserable and alone, there would be no gentle vin waiting for him. Then, a familiar sinewy arm scooped him up from the water, a command of, Shut your eyes, and a powerful thrust propelled him downwards. When Tinkari woke, he was inside a thatch hut. Hanta leaned over his bed, almost unrecognizable in the absence of her distinct misery-eyed decoration. If only there were many others in the world with the same beauty and bearing of the ords-bearer. She wore a pair of fitted pants and a loose linen shirt. He tried to speak and choked, spitting up by the bedside. His vomit looked less like water than a curse, splutters of absolute blackness. Don't worry, I swallowed a lot of that gunk too, Hanta grinned. Swimming in a river where it meets the ocean is not an easy feat, and the narrow deal I managed to cut with the Shashi didn't provide much for comfort. Thankfully, your unguent from Gilgish was just the solution we needed. Did we? Did we really escape the underworld? We never crossed over, or that would have been a different deal, and not one I might have the chips to make, Hanta said. We were still in the territory of the Shashi when it led us off for a little something. A, a little what? Well, the soul of the Emperor of Mizar enshrined in his death mask, to be precise. She left. They shouldn't be making those damn things in the first place. You were right. Anyone who dies anywhere ends up in the waters of the underworld. 
But the wealthy and the powerful are always greedy to skip to the front of the line. If that puts their afterlife in the wrong hands, I'd say that's quite well deserved. In the two moon turns of their brief relationship, Tinkari had never seen Hanta so cheerful. He winced as he slowly pieced together her words. You delivered the deceased emperor of the Mizar to the Shashi instead of sending him to the underworld. I cannot even imagine the consequences that might have among the greatest powers that rule the world. Then those powers can fight among themselves. Hanta laughed, leaning over to kiss his mouth. I am a mere lowly human. I kept all my deals, stayed on the barge to its end, didn't plunder any treasures under the sun, didn't keep a concubine longer than I could feed him, even brought the river an unexpected gift that it would have never acquired on its own. Her breath smelled of roses and mint. If I wish to remain in this village and ply my old profession of pearl diving, I suspect I may never lack for mollusks as long as I live. But I have a fancy to travel to Chavage and take up the leisurely life on an exotic foreign heiress. Maybe even bring a beautiful husband. One trained in his forsaken past in the brothel of Calnrum seems like a particularly befitting candidate, since he might have to find a new occupation as well. And cities offer the widest range of options for a man not insufficiently wealthy himself. What do you think? So Tinkari said, Yes. Yes. That would be very good indeed. If I could sail a gallon ship. Mimi Mondal is a Dalit writer of speculative fiction and social justice nonfiction and the poetry and reprints editor of Uncanny Magazine. Her first anthology, Luminescent Threads, Connections to Octavia Butler, co-edited with Alexandra Pierce, was published by Twelfth Planet Press in 2017. Mimi's writings have also appeared in Uncanny Magazine, Anathema Magazine, The Book Smugglers, Podcastle, Daily Science Fiction, Scroll In, and other publications. She is the recipient of the Octavia E. Butler Scholarship for the Clarion West Writing Workshop in 2015. More about her background, politics, literary tastes, and editorial preferences can be found at this interview with the Science Fiction and Fantasy Poetry Association. Mimi lives in Manhattan and tweets from Miminality. Joshua A.C. Newman is a publisher, author, illustrator, game designer, graphic designer, and experimental musician. He lives in Arkham, Massachusetts, with no cats and a suspicious pile of electronic components. Jose Fabus' credits include the short film Not Guilty, Best Actor My Final Shot Production Film Festival, The Path, Blind Spot, Law and Order, Law and Order, Criminal Intent, and the web series East Willie B. Off-off Broadway and Regional Theater include OREX, GNF Company, the Deep Runner Puerto Rican Traveling Theater, Acts of Mercy at Rattlestick, and in the Tropics at Portland Center Stage, Williamstown Theater, and the Hartford Stage Company. He can be reached at jlfebus at hotmail.com. 
This episode was made possible by our Patreon subscribers. A special thank you to A.M. McGuire. Thank you for listening to The Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Your hosts are Marcy Arlen as Calliope DeGamowitz, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act 2, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Our audio was engineered by Kyle Fink and Atticus Garten. This podcast uses many sound effects from YouTube, freesound.org, and from FreeSFX at freesfx.co.uk. Special thanks go out to Mike Allen, Zigzag Claiborne, CSE Cooney, Alpha Daily Majors, Wilson Fowley, Tatiana Gomberg, Julia D. Guzman, Carlos Hernandez, Gary Benjamin Holt Jr., Adeodat Ilbudo Roberson, Larissa De Lima, Marco Palmieri, and Diana Foe. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want, but don't sell it or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes or comment on our website at kaleidocast.nyc, which is where you can find links to all our contributors. <laughs>